Good morning, church. It's so good to see you. Uh, Christ is risen. Hallelujah. I'm so happy that you're here and so happy that we can celebrate together. I do want to just say um, welcome to all of you, especially if you're visiting today. I'm Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at this church, and I really mean it when I say that wherever you're here, um, whoever you are, whatever you believe, whatever you believe about Jesus, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, um, we're just so grateful that you came to our party today, because that's really what Easter is. It's, it's a big party. This is why we ring these silly bells and uh, shout out hallelujah and wear you know, fancy clothes and why we will glut ourselves this afternoon on food that is not good for us and why you know, we celebrate for 40 days of Eastertide, basically one big long party, because Christians really do believe that the resurrection is the really big deal of the universe. Uh, we believe that it's the day that changes everything. It's the day that changes our lives. It's the day that, that changes the whole movement of creation. So that's why we're here. We're glad you're here with us. Um, just to, to bring you up to speed, if you haven't been here at all or not in a while, um, we've been in a sermon series uh, over the last two months called The Questions of Jesus. And what we've been doing is basically looking at just a few of the many, many questions that Jesus asked in the Gospels. And what we think we're discovering when we look at these questions is that Jesus asks people questions all the time, and he's doing it not to test us or analyze us or examine us. He's doing it because he loves us, and he wants us to know him, and he wants him to know us. His questions really are an invitation into relationship. And this morning is a great example of that, Um, his question, why are you weeping, that he asked in John chapter 20. So, if you'll turn there in your, in your Bibles or in your bulletins to page six, I'm going to pray for us as we read God's Word. Father, thank you so much that we can be here this morning celebrating on this amazing Easter morning, and we do pray now that you would pour out your Spirit upon me and all of us, that we would not just hear your Word, but be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's Word from John 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. But Mary, verse 11, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she then turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was him. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? That's our question. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen 
the Lord, and that he had said all these things to her. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. When I was in college, I took a lot of um, English in writing classes. It was something I was interested in. And I learned something, a a writing or literary technique called uh, the turn. The turn. There's a lot of things that make up a great story. There's you know, character development, and there's rising action, there's falling climax, all, all these kinds of things. But one, one thing that makes a, a good story into a great story is called the turn. And it's that, it's that place in the plot where everything turns and the narrative shifts and the outcome dramatically changes and what look like certain defeat and loss and death sort of breaks open into victory and triumph and light. That's, that's the turn. And every great story that we know and love has somewhere in it the turn. So fairy tales, for example, have the turn. So Little Red Riding Hood, you know, Little Red's about to get eaten by the wolf. We think she's going to get gobbled up. And then what happens? In burst, the lumberjack kills the wolf, rescues Red all as well, right? That's the turn. Are y'all get with me here, okay? Or some of our great iconic stories in our culture have the turn, like Star Wars, the first Star Wars episode four, um, the best of them all, you know, the, 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 the Rebel Alliance is just hanging on by a thread. Their only hope is this harebrained idea to fly right into the heart of the Death Star. Young Luke Skywalker flies his X-wing right into the heart of the enemy and he delivers a fatal blow just as they're about to be extinguished. The indestructible is destroyed and all is well, right? That's the turn. Y'all, y'all with me here. Um, all great sports Stories have the turn. 1980, the miracle on ice when the U.S. hockey team playing the Russians in the Olympics. No one could beat the Russians. No one has beat the Russians. In the final third period, the Americans score this final goal and they win. That's the great turn. The unthinkable victory is snatched from defeat. And of course, I have to mention that thing that happened in March, uh, that little tournament where, where UVA, which, yeah... <laughs> It's lost, you know, in the, in the year before it lost in the first round of the 16th seed, comes back in, in the last second, the last three games, triumphs in the unthinkable win. You know, y'all, that is the glorious turn. <laughs> Are y'all, y'all hear what I'm saying here, right? Are y'all with me? You understand how this turn thing works? So the turn, all great stories have the turn. We love the turn as humans because every turn is, is what we really long for. We all want it to be true. And what I want us to see this morning is that the Easter story, the story that I just read, is, of all the stories, is the great turn. It is the, 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 the most powerful, the most impacting, the most important turn in all of history, and in many ways, it is the turn to which all other little turns point, the great turn on which creation depends. So let, let's look at this story. You know, Mary... Magdalene comes to the tomb early in the morning, and obviously she is just weeping. She's totally cut to the heart. Her Savior, her Messiah, her Master, her Teacher, the one on whom she has hung all her hopes has been executed by the Roman state, and so she is just at her wit's end. She goes to the tomb already distraught, And then she finds that the stone has been rolled away. She can only assume that the body has been stolen, and she is just wrecked. 
And in fact, if you look at verse 11, and it says she stood weeping outside the tomb. I looked up that word in, in the original Greek this week, and it actually is a word that means to wail bitterly. This is, a, it, this is not a, a dainty cry. This is a, this is a, a sort of a whole body, loud sobbing that envelops the whole person. Some of you have cried like that before. You know what it is to cry like that. I once sat with a young family whose little baby girl had died in their arms, and it was that kind of, that kind of crying, sort of overwhelming, whole body, life-draining, heartbreaking, primal sobbing that comes up out of the soul. And in many ways, Mary's weeping here represents the weeping of everybody, everyone who has ever wept is embodied in her. And so Dale Bruner says this, Mary's emotion represents the emotion of the whole world in the presence of the overwhelming cruelty of death. In many ways, the story of the world is a story of weeping. It's a story in which babies can die, in which terrorists destroy, and cancer kills, and children are abused and, and, and enslaved, and jobs are lost, and, and marriages and relationships fall apart, and this is a story in which every single person in this room will run out of life, and the things that we most treasure and value will be irrevocably taken from us by death. The story of the world is a story of weeping, and that's how this Easter story starts, with weeping. But then something happens. Mary goes to the grave. If you imagine, it's sort of like a cave in the side of a, of, a, of a rock wall, and so that's why she has to stoop. She decides she has to go in and take a closer look, and there's these two guys. That's kind of weird. These are these two guys in the tomb. She's not kind of sure who they are. She has this little strange interaction with them, and then she hears this voice behind her, and she turns, and she sees this man who she thinks is the gardener, and he says, our question, he says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And, and we got to understand, I mean, it's, it's, it's understandable that she would not recognize Jesus. She's been, she's, she's been crying for two days. Her eyes are swollen. It's dark in the morning. It's in, there's shrubbery everywhere. And, oh, oh, and the fact that she does not expect to be talking to a man who had just died. That's a big one, too. <laughs> and so she's confused. She's disoriented. She's talking to this man who she thinks is the gardener. And then we see in verse 26, Jesus says one word. Her name, Mary. And then look, look at verse 26. What does it say? She turned. And in that one moment, in that turn, everything changes. I mean, how long does it take to turn your body? Time me here. How long does this take? Like this. How long did that, what, 0.4 seconds? And in that 0.4 second turn, Everything dramatically changed. She went from the woman in deepest despair to the woman in highest elation. She went from agonizing sorrow to unquenchable joy. She went from desperation to jubilation. She went from unconquerable death to unstoppable hope in 0.4 seconds. That is the turn that Mary makes. And what Easter says, friends, what Easter claims is that the turn for Mary is the turn for all of us. That in that moment, everything changed. History shifted from B.C. to A.D. The world turned on its axis. Creation was rescued from entropy and death and moved toward hope and life. In that turn, it's a turn for all of us. 
It's a turn for every man, every woman, every child who trusts in this one who has risen from the dead, that that turn has happened for all creation. That's why we're here. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. That's why we're here, my friend. Thank you for the bell. I'll just ring it again, okay? So, so if this is true, and billions of Christians around the world today believe that it is, here's what I want to just ask of us. What does this mean for us if this turn really happened? What does it mean for people like you and for people like me in Richmond, Virginia in the 21st century? Well, let me just make a few suggestions as we look at this amazing text. First of all, I think it means that Easter is a turn. Oh, I forgot to show you my amazing diagram. Look at that. The turn, (laughs) weeping turn to joy. Um, I think, first of all, it means that the turn is a turn towards grace. It's an Easter is an offer of grace. You know, Mary Magdalene is an interesting person in the Gospels. She, we know that she was demon-possessed. Uh, Luke 8, 2 actually says that she was possessed by seven demons, which sounds pretty serious. I don't know the difference between being possessed by one or seven, but sounds real serious to be possessed by seven demons. And there's also a strong tradition in church history that suggests that Mary may have been the woman of the city, the prostitute that we read about in Luke 17. And so um, it's interesting. All four Gospels attest that this is the woman. This is the first person that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection from the dead. Now, it makes you ask, why would Jesus do that? Why would he make his first appearance to a woman like this, because frankly, if I were Jesus, that does not seem like a wise choice. If I were trying to make a strong case for the historical veracity of the viability of the resurrection, I would not choose this person as the first witness, because first of all, you might know that women in the ancient world were oppressed and subjugated and marginalized, and they were not even considered to be reliable witnesses in the court of law. And secondly, this particular woman was known to be deranged and had a highly dubious moral past. So why would Jesus choose her as the first witness of the resurrection, really as the first missionary, the first proclaimer, the first messenger that he has risen from the dead? Why would Jesus do that? Because he's hilarious. And because Christianity, the gospel, Easter, the good news is grace, friends. It is all about grace. Jesus is rising and making himself known to Mary to say, this is the kind of person that I am here for, an outsider. She is on the outside in every way a person can be outside. She is a woman, not a man. She is poor, not middle class. She she was deranged, not sane. She was immoral, not moral. In every way a person could be on the outside, she was on the outside. And Jesus says, I'm rising for Mary's. I'm rising for people who are not good, not the good people, not the sane people, not people on the inside, but the people on the outside. And I want to be clear that Christianity is a good news of a message of grace. It is not that the good are in and the bad are out. It is the humble are in and the proud are out. Those who know that they are broken and know that they are weak and know that they are messed up and know that they have no hope in themselves, those are the ones in Jesus' kingdom that are in. And those who are proud and self-sufficient and think they can do life on their own, they're the ones who are out because the Christian Easter message is a message about grace. It is not your performance, not your past, not your record of good works that makes you right with God. It is grace. It is pure grace. It is Jesus doing for you what you could not do for for yourself. It is him rising for you, dying for you, ascending for you, doing everything for you to welcome you into the arms of God. 
I mean, don't you even love what he says about the disciples in verse 17? He doesn't say, uh, hey, hey, Mary, go tell those miserable deserters that they can come see me now. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, he doesn't say, what does he say? He says, go tell my brothers that my God is their God and my Father is their Father. He restores he loves. God keeps on loving. Even when we threw him away, even when we put him in the grave, even when we kick him in the curb, he triumphs. He keeps on loving because that is what the Easter message is all about. So I just want you to know, if you are here today and you're one of those people who just kind of shows up in church every now and then, and you might be saying to yourself, look, I like Jesus and everything, but I could never be a Christian, a Christian because I'm not good at being good. Look, trying to be good, that's the last thing that you should be trying to do because Christianity is not goodness, it's grace. It's grace for deserters. It's grace for sinners. It's grace for betrayers. It's grace for the messed up outcasts, outsiders of the world. That is the message of good news. So if you are saying here today, oh, this is not for me, guess what? Jesus rose for you. It is for you. He rises for Mary's. So he, Easter is a turn towards grace. It's also a turn towards relationship. I love verse 16, perhaps Jesus is shortest and most powerful sermon in the gospel, a single word, Mary. Some of y'all are like, I'd like you to preach a sermon that short, preacher. Um, maybe one day, friends, not today. Uh, I love that he says, Mary and her world changes with a single word. It's like John 10, the shepherd knows his sheep and calls them by name and his sheep know his voice. She hears her name and she knows his voice. It is a very powerful, very intimate, very personal scene. This is relationship, friends, with a living person. And what happens next is really unusual because it's clear that what happens is that, is that Mary grabs him. She, 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 she hugs him. In fact, so much so that verse 17 it's really kind of funny what happens because Jesus in verse 17 is like, oh, don't cling to me. Like he's, it, he's, she's like suffocating him. She's holding him so hard. He's like, Mary, I can't breathe now. Okay, let me go. Don't cling to me. And then he says this beautiful thing to her. He says, listen, I, I know that you want to hold on to me, but I've got to go to my father. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send my spirit and then we will even be closer than we are now. I won't have to be physically present with you. I will be spiritually present to all of my sheep. And I will call their name and I will call your name every day. And you will hold on to me and I will hold on to you. And it will be beautiful. See, that's what Jesus is doing here. He is offering to Mary and he is offering to every single person who calls his name to know you. And to be in a powerful living relationship with you. You know, I already outed myself as a UVA person. And UVA people have this really weird thing with Thomas Jefferson going on where they think he's the bee's knees, and, you know, and they, they think he's so awesome and they exemplary and overlook his serious flaws. And, um, and sometimes people even treat him like he's like their best friend. They have like a portrait of him in their house. And I just want to say with all due respect, yes, he can be an example. Yes, he could be sort of a great founding father. But you cannot have a relationship with Thomas Jefferson because the man is dead. You, in the same way you can't have a relationship with Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King or Shakespeare. These can be exemplary people whose memories we cherish, but you cannot know them. And that is so different from the Easter message because we are not here today to celebrate the memory of a fine man. We are here to actually 
make the promise that this man is living. He is risen from the dead. He is loose in creation and is now making a promise to you that you can know him as Mary does here. Christianity is not a collection of religious ideas. Christianity is Christ, it is the offer of a person. It is an offer that you can be his sheep. You can hear him say your name. You can know his voice. And I'm telling you, there is nothing that gives you power and courage and endurance than this powerful living relationship with the Lord of all things. And you're going to see a video in just a moment about one of our brothers, William, who, who has endured through great trial because he knows that he has a living companion in Jesus who has said to him, I will be with you wherever you go. So that is a beautiful turn of Easter. Finally, the other great turn that we see is a turn towards hope. We've said this already, that the turn is not just for Mary, it is a turn for all creation. It is a turn for everyone who names the name of Jesus. You know, Easter means that no matter what, the turn of history has shifted and we are now moving towards the renewal of all things. It, it's weird because there's still a lot of weeping in the world. There's still a lot of suffering and there's still a lot of pain. I know that you all, many of you all, endure such things even today. There are times when hope feels like it is lost and there are times when suffering feels overwhelming and there are times when death feels like it is very strong. But here's the thing, to believe in Easter means to believe that the turn has happened, and no matter what, no matter how terrible, how painful, what tragedy may occur, the turn has happened, and nothing can now undo the momentum that Jesus has bought through his resurrection from the dead in robbing death from the grave itself, that we are moving towards the renewal of all things. Yeah, I often think of uh, this great woman on Easter, Johnny Erickson Tata. Um, Johnny, when she was 17 years old, she dove into a lake, miscalculated its depth and broke her neck and became a quadriplegic from the neck down. She still is today. And Joni, in her autobiography, she writes about the most difficult thing for her initially was when she would go to church. And when people would stand and raise their hands or clap or kneel, especially the kneeling thing, really got to her. And she would sit in church and just weep because she couldn't participate with her community. And then one day she was in the church and everyone's kneeling and she's weeping. And she just suddenly had this she had this, this revelation, this picture, this thought of the resurrection. And this is what she writes in, in her book. She said, um, I with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives to someone who is spinal cord injured, like me. And then she writes this. The first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. And I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. Even to a quadriplegic like her, Jesus says, why are you weeping? Because we are on our way towards the renewal of all things. The renewal of our bodies, the renewal of the material world, the renewal of relationships, the renewal of work, the renewal of our very lives that day when he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more death or mourning or weeping or pain for the old order of things has passed 
away. Turn towards hope. So friends, one of, let me just say this as we close. One of my favorite authors um, is J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote um, that masterful series, The Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien was a master of the turn. He actually invented a phrase to describe the turn, and it's this phrase, uh, eucatastrophe, eucatastrophe. And this is what it means. He said that the eucatastrophe is the sudden and unexpected appearance of goodness, the happy turn in a story which pierces you with joy and brings you to tears. So it's that moment when you think everybody's about to die, and instead the eagles swoop in, or the riders of Rohan arrive, or Gandalf the White appears and saves them as they're about to be eaten by mountain trolls. That is the eucatastrophe. He took the word catastrophe, which means kata down, strophe turn, and he put you in front of it, which is the Greek prefix for good, and it means the sudden appearance of goodness that pierces you with joy and brings you to tears. Now, what you might not know about Tolkien is that he was also a follower and believer in Jesus. And what Tolkien believed is that what he was writing about when he wrote about the eucatastrophes is that he was actually writing about the great eucatastrophe of all things. For him, that was the resurrection. He writes this, the resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the world. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find true and none to which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the world. It is the turn on which the history of the world pivots. It is the turn which has generated momentum for our lives that we are moving towards hope. It is the turn on which all other eucatastrophes points. So let me close with a with a eucatastrophe. So there was uh, once uh, a young man in the Civil War named Tipton Webster McKinley, and he fought for the Union, and he was captured at the end of the Civil War in 1865 and imprisoned in a prison camp in Andersville, Georgia, which was a really brutal prison camp. And the war ended in April of 1865, and all camps were liberated, and he was as well. Now, unbeknownst to him, it had been communicated to his family in the Hudson Valley of New York that he had died, that he had been killed in battle, as often happened in the war. But because all infrastructure had been shut down and no communications were available, he really had no way to communicate to his family, and so he just began the long journey back home from Georgia to the Hudson Valley. And so it took him many weeks, you know, traveling on wagon trains and making his way on railroads and walking often on long stretches of highway and picking up steamboats when he could up the Hudson River. And finally, one early summer evening, he finally reached his family's farm in Poughkeepsie, New York, in the Hudson Valley. And it was early, two in the morning, so he didn't want to wake up his family. They were all asleep. The house was dark. He went into the family barn and went to sleep on the hay on the floor. He slept very poorly, kept knocking into this sort of rigid, hard thing on the floor. He woke up at first light, kind of scraped the, the hay away to see what it was that he kept rolling over on and saw his own tombstone, his own tombstone that said, Tipton Webster McKinley, dead, 1865. So what did he do? He picked up that tombstone. Y'all, this is a true story, okay? I'm not making this up. He picked up that tombstone and he walked across the yard as the morning dawned. 
over to his family's home, their front door. And carrying his tombstone, he knocked on the door with his foot. And his dad opened the door. And his eyes (laughs) went real big. And the pipe that he was smoking just dropped out of his mouth. And McKinley handed that tombstone back to his dad. He said, Dad, we won't need this anymore. And friends, that is a eucatastrophe. And that is the great eucatastrophe that points to that day when we will not need tombstones anymore because Christ has risen from the dead. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this great eucatastrophe of Easter. And we pray that you would liberate our souls, our hearts, our minds. Fill us with gratitude for the grace, the relationship, the hope that you have brought us because Jesus has risen from the dead. Amen.